Hello from Estonia and welcome back to the Startup in Estonia podcast produced by Startup Estonia and hosted this season by me, Adam Rang. Now, as you may have noticed, our planet is in crisis. And actually, I might need to be a bit more specific about which one. In today's show, we're going to talk about what many people think is the biggest crisis of them all, which is our environmental crisis. And this isn't an easy subject to talk about, including for startups, um, which are sometimes part of the problem in many ways. You know, even like electronic digital solutions do require energy that often starts with burning fossil fuels. Um, But startups are increasingly part of the solution too. And I'm not just talking about startups that are specific specifically focused on offering an environmental solution, like all startups can think about how they reduce their impact on the environment and how they can communicate that to customers. But does that come at a cost? Does that reduce profits? Or can an environmental strategy be a fundamental part of a startup's growth strategy? Can going green actually be good for business? And how do customers know it's not just marketing? Well, To help us make sense of all of this, we have a guest today from a big startup that has gone green in a big way. Um, They're literally green. You've probably seen their green branding all over the place. Um, But they have also just launched like a really comprehensive environmental strategy. That startup is Bolt. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Bolt's head of sustainability, Sandra Sarav. Welcome to the podcast, Sandra. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's. Uh, I hope I can shed um, shed some light on what you just mentioned. Um, but just to you know maintain the expectations, it's not a massive, um, a comprehensive strategy. It's just one bit of a longer uh, sustainability strategy that we're working on at Bolt. Okay, so it's something that's evolved over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, um, Sandra, I came here today by Bolt. I use Bolt uh, pretty much every day. Um, for for people who don't live in the same bubble as me, maybe some people have never heard of Bolt somehow. Um, can you give the elevator pitch for for Bolt? Sure. Um, are we ready? Yes. <laughs> uh, Bolt is the largest European ride-hailing company that has expanded over time from uh, merely being a transport platform offering ride-hailing to offering e-scooter solutions as well as uh, food delivery and business delivery as well. We call ourselves to be the biggest from Europe because we are a European startup. We come from Estonia. We've been named uh, to be the top three fastest growing company by Financial Times two year in a row. And this year we were named to be uh, hottest unicorn of the year as well in Europe. And uh, we've recently gone green uh, beyond the color. Uh, so even though the company was started with the idea of reducing personal car ownership, we've actually now started offsetting and looking at more greener verticals of how people could uh, uh, move around in terms of urban mobility. Perfect. And we've just reached the top floor in that elevator. Um, and Sandra, it's really amazing because like, so I was on a Bolt scooter today and looking around, like I saw so many other Bolt vehicles and I thought it's incredible how quickly this one startup has really come to dominate our kind of public uh, cityscape. Um, and even kind of, I've been traveling around the Baltic states this summer within our Baltic bubble. And I now see like a Bolt scooter as like the de facto sign for the edge of the city limits. You see a Bolt scooter and you know you're entering a new town. So it's really really kind of really shaping our kind of public uh, landscape. Um, it's like, can you give us the big numbers? Like how many rides how are people taking with bolts okay, around the so world? <laughs> I cannot go into specifics because uh, it's a uh, business secret, but mm-hmm. I can say that we have over 1 million drivers across the globe. We're in 35 countries in more than 150 cities and we do more than a million rides each day. A million drivers and... 
Am I right in saying it started here in Tallinn with your founder just walking around taxi ranks trying to sign up? Uh, and he was, how old was he at the time? 19. 19. Yeah, so, so basically, Marcus uh, had this idea. Um, so he says it, it came up because he couldn't get a taxi when he wanted to go to a party. Mm. I don't think you were living in Tallinn at the time. No. But basically, over the weekends, if you needed to get a taxi, it would first be on hold um, uh, over the telephone for like 15 minutes. And then they would let you know, I'm sorry, there's no car for you. <laughs> mm. So these things have luckily changed, right? But I mean, beyond the idea of just getting a car over the weekend, the idea was also that we have so many cars in Tallinn. And today we're facing like 100,000 more cars by 2035. So we're a highly motorized uh, society. I don't know if it's due to our history. Um, you know, we weren't allowed to have a car unless you had a ticket to buy a car during the Soviet times. Um, or people just uh, figured this as a status symbol. And in any case, we have way too many cars in Tallinn. And Bolt offering those different verticals, like jump on a scooter or take a ride and then mix it with public transport, should help you actually to get rid of the personal car or extra personal car that you don't actually need in your family. Mm -hmm. And just, just a nice number here, like Tallinn and Helsinki started more or less uh, around the same time with this super uh, urban urbanization. Uh, in Helsinki, it's uh, less than 6% of households that have two or more cars. In Estonia, it's nearly 40% of households that have two or more cars. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also wondered if another reason why it particularly took off in Estonia um, initially is because we really like straight talking. We like a fair price. We don't necessarily like kind of haggling and dealing with uh, kind of middlemen and so stuff. So we don't and like talking to strangers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess it is a big difference when you can just you pay in advance on your phone. You don't have to kind of, you know, yeah, negotiate on what the price is for a taxi ride. Um, and uh, Sandra, what's your role at Bolt? Well, um, as of 1st of July, I'm the head of sustainability, uh, but I joined actually Bolt uh, more than one year ago uh, from the Estonian government. And then I served as the head of regulatory for Baltics and Nordics or public policy manager for Baltics and Nordics. Um, so I'm working both with regulatory issues still uh, in Baltics um, since I'm shifting to this new role. Uh, but essentially, I'm the head of sustainability, meaning I do need to figure out how our company can go more green in everything that we do. So that's not just recycling at the office or, or offsetting our rides, uh, but each and everything that we do as a company. So how to be more green. So you mentioned about kind of uh, people using cars less. Um, and so when we think about Bolt and not just Bolt, but other kind of ride sharing schemes in general, is it having like a net positive or negative effect on the number of rides people take? Is there any kind of data evidence around that kind of does the availability of rides mean people are more likely to jump in a vehicle that they can quickly use rather than walk or or is it people are reducing their um, dependence on their own personal vehicles as well? Well, we hope there is a reduction of personal vehicles. Um, I think this is more a longer-term strategy, and it depends what kind of options do you have available on the street, right? So for us, already having scooters uh, plus ride-hailing on the same platform, and mm. by the way, we were the very first ride-hailing platform to bring e-scooters on the same platform. Okay. We actually see that uh, people who start using scooters switch from ride-hailing to scooters. So it's like 9% of people who previously took ride-hailing only now switch to scooters for shorter rides. So that's already a very good number uh, mm. but in general uh, i think it's it's people who have more awareness um of of what it means to uh, make more conscious choices in urban transport they take this mixture of things but it's also people who just don't have their cars and then they take a right hailing car just to get from point a to point b or or when they're drinking yeah mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah and um sandra before we look more at your environmental strategy like how so 
Bolt really dominates kind of here in our part of the world. How does that compare around the world? Like, do you, uh, I think particularly in Europe and Africa, you're particularly big. Kind of why is that? Yeah, so uh, our main markets, so our focus markets are actually Europe and Africa. So we don't go to, let's say, North America uh, or even Asia because we see that the, those markets have uh, supply um, enough as it is. Uh, so we call ourselves to be the most frugal company out there. So it's a very Estonian mindset, I think. Do more with less, right? So we're only 1,700 people as opposed to big competitors who maybe have 20, 30,000 employees uh, working at the company. Uh, so we go to markets where we know we can be the first or the contender, where we don't have to, let's say, burn too much money just to get market access. So this way we actually save money uh, to go to markets where we know we may win some market share. Mm. And I guess in the past, there was more of a debate about kind of, you know, is this the future? Do we want kind of ride sharing in our cities? But actually, am I right in thinking Estonia was the first country to legalize ride sharing? In actually, Europe? yeah. Uh, so in 2017, we changed the public transport law, uh, public mm. transport act. So basically to bring taxis and, and, and ride hailing on the same platform. The only differentiation point is how you order the taxi to get it from a street uh, via the, or via the call uh, slash uh, to actually get it via an app. So this also means that if you get it via an app, you don't need to have a taxi meter in the car because the calculation of the route and the price is done via via the application. Versus if you actually hail the, the car from the street or over the phone, you need to have an additional taxi meter in the car to do all the calculations. But this also means that for us as a platform taxi or, uh, or transport service over the platform, uh, we cannot uh, do uh, street pickups. So mm -hmm. people cannot pick up a bolt car from the street. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess this is the. There's no doubt this is the new normal now. There's an enormous demand. Well, it's actually, not going away. I mean, we hope so, but it's not the case even in Europe uh, really? because many countries still uh, haven't regulated, or they have such an old, outdated regulation in place uh, that uh, platform taxis are not even allowed. Mm. So I mean, Germany, which otherwise you know is a big uh, you know tech. Uh, industry country um, they have these stupid place I'm sorry but they're stupid stupid rules still in place mm -hmm. uh, uh, for taxi services uh, for instance return to garage rule meaning if now as a driver I take you to your destination I have to go back to my initial point wow. which you know is not environmentally friendly <laughs> yeah. it also loses the most crucial time that is there for the taxi drivers meaning that the time between when you drop off a client and pick up a new one should be the shortest mm -hmm. so you maximize your revenues yeah. but if you go back to Let's say in Estonia, I, I take you to Nume and then I have to come back to Gesklin mm -hmm. and maybe another customer was, was there at Nume already. Yeah, yeah. So, so actually regulation comes into crucial place in the service. But do you ever see things going backwards or like surely once people start using ride sharing, they get used to it, then it's very difficult for like uh, kind of local legislators to try and turn back the clock and turn it off. Or do you see in some countries that it does, there's pushback? It, it has happened uh, because, uh, you know, the, the big American player in our, our field, uh, they came to the market in Europe um, um, five or so years ago and they didn't play by the rules. They introduced a service that was kind of in a gray area or outside of the scope of, of how the service should be offered. Um, and then many regulators actually got upset and then they started blocking the service in many of the markets. Um, but we see, you know, trends everywhere. When you don't liaise with, with governments or cities, when you don't want to become their friends, they might get upset and try to figure out ways how to block this novelty services altogether. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they just don't understand how a service works. Mm -hmm. And this is completely opposite of Estonia, right? Where we embrace new te technologies versus a country where you think, okay, I'm going to actually regulate and not allow the service because they, I don't understand how it works. 
and I guess cities kind of have to work with you because, you know, like transport is a huge part of cities' own environmental strategies and they can't ignore the kind of reality if people are using services like this. Yeah. And and we need to talk to cities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's it's very much a, a twofold, uh, um, let's say, cooperation. So, so Bolt has gone big on its kind of environmental strategy. What is the main motivation? Like, yeah, is it to increase profits or like, yeah. Okay, so I mentioned when we started off in 2013, and when I say we, I mean the brother Vilix because I wasn't in the game mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> and so when we started off as a company in 2013, the idea was already then to to reduce dependency on personal cars, right? Mm. So I mean, do you own a car? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. so how much do you use this car per day? Uh, it's between me and my partner, so yeah. Uh, yeah, once, probably once a day we'll use it, yeah. So, I mean, normally a car sits in a parking lot 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're only using it 5% of the time to get somewhere, and then if you go to work, to the office, for instance, it sits there until you take it back home, yeah. and then it sits uh, in your home. Yeah. Um, then many places, like Tallinn, have four to five uh, parking uh, lots allocated uh, for personal cars per car, so it's like 50 to 60 square square meters uh, of room just for one car, mm-hmm. which is the size of an apartment, for instance. So we thought this was stupid, uh, that the company needs to change how urban uh, transport works. So this was already at the time. But now, I mean, fast forward to 2019, we realized, okay, we tried to make a change, but still people use the service as complementary to having their own cars. Or I mean, in best case scenario, maybe they get rid of the second car in their family. But still, we have more or less 1 million cars around the world. Um, I mean, not us, but our drivers have mm-hmm. r- roughly 1 million cars around the world, which are still, let's say, prevalently uh, internal combustion engine cars. So gasoline, uh, diesel cars, mm-hmm. which are not that environmentally friendly. Um, so we we figured we need to do something and then we started offsetting in 2019 in September. So basically we took all of our European rights, we calculated, you know, what's the car type, what's the motor it uses, how old is the car, what's uh, what's the road it takes uh, to the client and then taking the client to the uh, destination point. And then we, we, we calculated the CO2 emissions and then we started offsetting them with a the partner we have in the UK. So basically we buy, uh, let's say, emission credits. Uh, so these are highly standardized, uh, standardized projects, um, you know, certified. We know what we are buying into and, and we now have been offsetting all our rides in Europe. But that's just that one. Mm-hmm. Is the main impact of um, these uh, initiatives on your bottom line to reduce operating costs or... Or does it add costs when you invest in these schemes? Yeah, currently it adds costs, and we don't want to add anything to the uh, to the um, users, mm-hmm. so consumers. So it doesn't cost a cent more to the consumers. We pay the difference. Okay. Um, but off- offsetting is the first step. I mean, this is something we do until there is no prevalent use of electric vehicles. I mean, last uh, week Elon Musk came out with the new battery proposals, mm-hmm. which are kind of cost ten times less than they do now, which will also mean that the car electric vehicle cost would go down from let's say forty five thousand. To maybe twenty five thousand, uh, but it's still. I mean, since our business models it, model is that we have private drivers and, and they utilize their own personal cars for offering the service. Um, it's going to be a, a, quite a high investment for them to switch from their personal cars to buy electric vehicles. So this is a longer-term strategy. And as long as we don't have only electric vehicles on our platform, we have to figure out the way how actually we cut the emissions that we do with the current cars that we have. Okay. Now. Let me talk about this offsetting scheme then. So is this something that Bolt manages itself or do you, you kind of do you outsource it to companies that run these initiatives for you? 
Yeah, so um, we did the calculations ourselves uh, with our internal data scientists team. So what are the offsets actually? Uh, sorry, what are the CO2 emissions? Mm -hmm. uh, then we had this calculations method uh, verified by a third party. Um, okay. So we used a company called Verifavia. Um, they do those um, uh, verifications also in maritime, in aviation, etc. Mm -hmm. um, they're ISO standardized uh, and so forth. Um, and then we interviewed a few companies um, and we chose Natural Capital Partners, which is our UK-based company. So basically, uh, every quarter or so, we give them the numbers of what were the CO2 emissions, and they give us a list of projects where we can choose from, which are gold standard projects, VCS projects, so known in the industry. Uh, so we don't do greenwashing. We, we just don't go and, and finance uh, random projects, but we actually choose from a list of, of uh, certified projects, and then we offset via those uh, projects, such as you know funding alternative fuel um, uh, businesses, etc. Okay. And um, I was going to ask about greenwashing. I guess this is the perception that kind of some companies are just doing something relatively small tokenistic to reduce their environmental impact and to distract from much bigger um, issues they've got. How do how do customers know the difference between a company that's greenwashing and, and the company that genuinely believes in it is doing it properly? Uh, I think it's kind of tricky, actually, for customers. You need to do some extra research or, mm. or you need to look into it, right? I mean, these days you have this um, uh, closed retail companies who who claim to have a sustainable line mm. of clothing, right? Mm -hmm. But if you still pay maybe 10 euros uh, for a sweater, can it really be sustainable? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a question. But in our, our line of uh, company, um, I think we need to be very honest. So we're not saying that all, all of our rides are green uh, globally because it's very difficult to achieve this in Africa, where, mm -hmm. I mean, the main, main um, let's say, concern is still how you get from point A to point B in a safe manner. Um, they're still building their infrastructures, uh, etc. Um, so it's honesty uh, from the companies at first point. When it sounds too good to be true, it most likely is too good to be true at this mm. point. Um, and then, of course, I mean, you as a consumer need to realize if this actually is possible. Um, so we wouldn't, we cannot have a category fully of electric vehicles in Estonia where there are only 1,000 electric vehicles and there is not enough charging um, infrastructure as well. And have you had much feedback from customers about how are, you, are customers more attracted to, to using Bolt because of these environmental concerns? Do, do most customers notice? Um, yeah, I think it's actually the younger generation that's more, um, let's say, aware of, uh, of the greener options. They're happy with the scooters. They've also noticed that our rides are uh, carbon neutral, etc. But I don't think an average user actually understands. An average user is still very price sensitive. Um, we did a study last year uh, amongst the... Um, our customers in six European countries and we basically asked them would you use more alternative options if we had them available uh, on our platform and I mean luckily 95% or so of the people said that yes we would use those more alternative options and then we asked them would you use you, would you still use them if they're more expensive and then the same 95% said that they wouldn't use them if it's more expensive so, I mean, a right-hailing average user uh, still is very price sensitive. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out uh, about this point. Uh, but still, I mean, we've even had employees, uh, new employees coming to our company and said, well, we read about your green plan. Um, it's super exciting. I had other places or options where to go to work, but you actually are doing this. So it's, it's, it's really close to my heart, how I mm -hmm. think, and I want to come and work for you. 
investing and what do your investors think of this strategy <laughs> i think they're only happy <laughs> i mean um, if you think about the let's say wider scale uh, objectives europe wants to go carbon neutral by 2050 so i think you as an investor you have to think if this company has a long-term strategy actually to go and, and, and be carbon neutral by 2050 um and even we see that if if we fill in those uh, let's say questionnaires uh, or papers uh, for investors uh, from different verticals and what we do as a company then there are always questions about CSR, corporate sustainable responsibility, as well as, as mm. uh, green managing. And Sandra, there's going to be some people listening who might be at very small businesses, maybe very early stage startups, and they might think, well, you know, Bolt has the scale to do these kind of things. Um, is is this kind of green strategy something that can be applied to like very small companies as well, very early stage companies? Um, well, we just had a discussion with TransferWise as well. Uh, so Martin Willig from our company, and, and then we had uh, a few TransferWise colleagues. Uh, and we just discussed that in an ideal world, it would be in a way that every new startup, every new company would have in their business plan, you know, a green focus, mm -hmm. like steps you can take to, to be sustainable in your business. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's kind of rough uh, for startups now to, to think about this because they don't know where to start. Um, and it seems like a lot of uh, paperwork, uh, a lot of bureaucracy still. I mean, I mentioned, you know, we have a company, we, had the, we did the verifications, we chose uh, an offsetting company, we have to pick specific standards, uh, we have to report every now and then. So if your strategy as a company is survival <laughs> in the early phase, it's kind of difficult to think about sustainability. Um, but in an ideal world, they would have this in their business plan. And in an ideal world, I mean, the investors would already say, okay, we're only going to invest um, money in you if you have those sustainability points available. Mm, so Estonian companies launched the Tech Green Plan uh, last year. I don't know if you've heard about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So the Tech Green Plan uh, was uh, launched by 80 or so companies in Estonia and a few from the Baltics as well. So the idea is to uh, that we committed to going carbon uh, neutral by 2030. So all of the companies who joined in there. And now we've been a bit stuck uh, due to COVID. Uh, but uh, ideally, what we would do is help uh, how those new companies can actually figure out their carbon footprints and how to offset, offset those, uh, those uh, CO2 emissions. And this is like a very uh, politicized issue, the environment. Like, how do you feel about getting into kind of politics as a business as well? And maybe some companies listening might feel nervous about getting into any kind of political <laughs> debate. Uh, I Again, uh, you know, when we talk about European markets, uh, the European Commission said we need to go carbon uh, neutral by 2050. So I think governments uh, realize as well that they need to do something at the local level. And uh, just last week, Lithuania announced uh, that they're going to come out with an alternative fuels law mm. requiring all public transport, including taxis, to use only alternative fuels from 2029. Um, but still, I mean... It's very easy for those politicians or for the government to set some requirements, um, but how do they support us? So I mentioned electric vehicles, that we need to purchase those, that they're too expensive at this point uh, for individual drivers who actually use this, dri uh, use this car as a family car as well. If it's 45,000 euros, um, the price per mile can be cheaper, but the initial um, investment that you need to do is quite uh, high. So how can government support here? Uh, Estonian government uh, supports the purchasing of electric vehicles with 5,000 euros per car. But this, uh, this fund is only available once or so per year. And last time it was open, it ran out of funds in four hours. <laughs> and okay. then there are some, some countries that offer two to 3,000 euros per car, and it might go as high as seven, 8,000, which is in France. Um, but even, you know, 5,000 euros for a 45,000 euro car is quite small amount. Mm -hmm. 
Sandra, in a previous episode, we talked about um, how, how to craft a company story and looked at kind of how to yeah, build up your identity. To what extent is your kind of environmental initiatives part of Bolt's identity and how do you communicate that? Um, I think it's a, it's a huge part as, you know, this is what's our business model altogether, um, reducing the every individual's uh, carbon footprint by reducing your own car use, um, going to use greener options, what we use uh, via retailing, etc. But I mean, just, you know, Martin Willig, who's our co-founder, is uh, the VP of sustainability now. I mm. mean, amongst his other duties, he's responsible for sustainability. Uh, so we together form like a team um, of, of sustainability. And if you think that we have a co-founder level person um, working on this, then you see that it's a, it's a super important uh, priority for the company as a whole. Yeah. And where do you think this thing should normally sit? Kind of maybe when uh, very small startups are kind of growing and, you know, they, they don't have space yet for a head of sustainability. Yeah. But like, who should be looking after sustainability after the founder? Is it kind of marketing or product development or? Uh, I think in this case, everyone. Everyone, um, okay. Yeah, because I mean, if you start with a new business project, if you start with a new vertical, new business idea, you don't even need to think, how can I offset that later? But when I start building it, how can I be more sustainable to begin with? And then, you know, you need to have the management who's thinking about, okay, if I need to to uh, get some investments, then probably the investors are already looking at the green aspects as well. So I think it needs to come from everywhere. Okay. So, so what year did you start these environmental initiatives? Uh, sorry? When did you start these environmental oh, initiatives? Um, so more concretely, we started in 2019 in September uh, okay. when we launched our green plan. So uh, the goal was um, to first uh, be carbon neutral in all of our rides in Europe mm -hmm. and then to offset at least uh, 5 million ton tons of CO2 by 2025. Um, now we've moved beyond that. Um, we've introduced uh, new verticals um, in more countries, including the e-scooters, which are inherently more environmentally uh, conscious choices of, of transport, um, as well as uh, we are looking at how to go climate positive with the e-scooters. But we're also changing different verticals. Like I mentioned that we don't own any car, don't own any cars. Uh, the the business model is that the the drivers come with their own cars and they offer the services our business partners. But when we do purchase some of the cars uh, for renting out to to drivers who not necessarily have their own cars, for for now we've purchased CNG cars. If electric is still too expensive, hybrid cars, CNG cars are an alternative, more friendly option as well. Mm -hmm. And Bolt has expanded at such an incredible speed in that same time as well so i guess your challenges must keep multiplying as well um like how do you work with like different city managers around the world then or people managing different countries how do they understand the green agenda and implement that locally yeah uh, just to give you first um, uh, a, a let's say glimpse of how fast we've grown when i joined last year in july i was the thousandth or so employee mm. and now we have 1700 employees uh, mm. so we're growing quite fast yeah but yeah i mean Luckily, everyone's on board with this idea. We understand that we as a company, I mean, first, we need to show example uh, in the field altogether. But then again, I mean, in order to leverage uh, good relationships uh, with the cities, we, we need to show that we are also conscious in, in the service uh, services that we offer. So I was formerly part of the regulatory team. Um, and whenever we open up a new market, whenever we want to offer a new service in those markets, we need to establish relations with the city, with the government, etc. So, so we do have those close relationships. 
And when we come up with new ideas, such as, you know, climate positive e-scooters or offsetting our rides, then we communicate this uh, to the local governments and, and uh, national governments as well. We usually do have very good relationships with them. Mm. <laughs> and I think we can mutually beneficial to each other. Yeah. Um, fairly good relationships, I guess, is a massive improvement to kind of, I guess, in the past, the perception was that ride sharing um, platforms were always battling against vested interests locally and with authorities. So I guess the relationship has changed quite considerably. Yeah, I mean, the key is, you know, to figure out we cannot do this without the consent of the city or mm. we cannot do this without looking what's the city's development plan. So when we go with a new service to the city, we look at, OK, do they have a transport plan? Do they have a development plan? And we try to align our service with this as well. Mm. Uh, we cannot go into, uh, let's say, uh, crossroads with the, with the city, just uh, that each of us wants, uh, wants a different agenda. That's not just possible. Yeah. And so you've added scooters. Yeah. Um, I, I love the scooters. Um, but like how environmental is a scooter? I guess there's different elements of it. You've got the kind of life cycle of it where you've got to build it and dispose of it, maintain it. And then you've got the kind of the power for it as well. Kind of how environmental are they? Um, well, if you asked me one year ago, I think my answer would have been different. Um, but Today, I would say it's um, next to walking and, and bicycles, it's the most alternative, uh, most uh, environmental alternative option mm -hmm. that you, you could choose. So basically, there was a study done, um, I think it was earlier this year. That's the most cited article basically on, on the impact of e-scooters on our environment. And it states that the environmental friendliness of a scooter depends on how it's made, uh, how long does it last, and mm. and what does it replace. So how it's made. Um, so we we now at uh, from the beginning of this year uh, we design and manufacture our own e-scooters. So we make them 90% of the uh, aluminium, the space-like aluminium, um, which is highly durable, it's highly recyclable, etc. We try to make it them in a way that they're modular, so you can uh, replace bits and pieces of the scooters if they break down. Uh, so you don't need to throw an entire scooter away. Um, you know, what does it replace? As I mentioned, we try to replace uh, people to switch from ride hailing to e-scooters. Okay. And currently we have like 9% of those. Uh, I think... The, Sorry, which percentage? 9% uh, of okay. people who switch yeah. from ride hailing to e-scooters. Okay. But then crucially, I think it's what's the lifespan of an e-scooter. Mm -hmm. So last year there were studies that mentioned that uh, an average e-scooter lasts for 28 days. In which case, mm. if you have massive CO2 emissions from uh, producing or manufacturing a scooter, and then the scooter lasts for 28 days, it cannot be ultimately envi environmentally friendly, right? Yeah. But this was the case because, you know, even the scooter manufacturers themselves were surprised that scooters got so popular in terms of rentals because they were produced for, for individual use at first. Mm. And then those platforms started purchasing those scooters and offered them as rentals. So they weren't that durable. So now the model that we have been producing and manufacturing, it's highly durable because it's specifically uh, uh, built for rental purposes. You know, maybe let's say um, it doesn't look as beautiful <laughs> as you would do for an individual uh, used scooter, but it's durable. Um, and, and so that's the main thing. And we've we've realized that our scooters go as uh, can go as far as five years. It gets you from A to B. I think it's fairly <laughs> beautiful. I don't have any complaints about how they look. Um, so Bolt is now a manufacturing company. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a food delivery company, manufacturing company, we're a taxi company, or some like to call us this way. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, though, because I do remember there was a lot of skepticism at first about scooters. And I remember reading an article about a year ago, and it was saying about how, oh, they're not as environmentally friendly as people think. And one of the points they made was that um, they're less environmentally friendly than um, a uh, packed bus. And I was thinking, like, well, actually, you know, buses are only <laughs> packed, like, kind of for two time periods per day. And actually, that's 
is still pretty good. <laughs> but I guess we kind of we treat cars as normal yeah. and we give them like a free pass for all the kind of environmental and other impacts they have on our city. And then we compare scooters to kind of walking rather than comparing it to cars or things like that. Yeah, but I mean, for scooters, you need to also take into account um, how they're charged. So what mm. type, type of electricity is available? Uh, so we just uh, finished our internal CO2 calculations of the e-scooters. So we took took into account everything. Um, so how they're shipped, um, how they're transported, uh, what kind of electricity do, you, do they use, um, how well recyclable they are, etc. And actually, the, the electricity bit is one of the biggest CO2 emitters. Mm. Uh, because in, in some countries where they still don't use very green um, electricity, actually, you charge uh, the scooter locally. And this is where your CO2 emissions come from, largely. Mm. So you really have to get a complete overview of everything. I guess the more you look into it, the more complicated it gets. You think yeah. kind of measuring something like a scooter's environmental impact is quite easy. But then when you go back to find out where materials came from and how they were produced, it's yeah. well, that's a lot of research. Um, and I guess another reason why, uh, e-scooters kind of why people were skeptical at the time. I remember seeing a lot of pictures on social media of, um, kind of graveyards of, um, particularly bikes, um, particularly in China where there was kind of a lot of ride sharing, um, startups trying to compete in a single market and kind of flooding the market with way more bikes in this case than uh, people needed. And I guess that kind of created a lot of negative perceptions at the time, how has that kind of changed? Well, um, it has and it hasn't. Um, even if we look at Europe, Oslo is currently facing uh, a flooding of scooters really? because uh, there are different competitors who want to access the market and how you get the how do you win over consumers? If your scooters are more visible, how are they more visible? You put mm. more of them out on the streets, and this has resulted in the fact that Oslo, which has uh, a population of six hundred thousand people, has fifteen thousand scooters. It's very high number. Um, and, and it's just because companies uh, want to get their presence uh, right out there on the streets, right? Versus, uh, versus in uh, countries such as Tallinn and Estonia, we negotiate with the city. So all of the players, uh, e-scooter operators who want to operate in Tallinn city, we have negotiations with the city. Um, we set uh, more or less a limit of scooters that can be put out on the streets. But this, I mean, this has come with the knowledge of operations. We started already last year. We started with X amount of uh, X number of scooters. So this year we realized, do we need to adjust this number? Do we put out, do we need to put out more or less, etc.? So you actually gain knowledge as you operate uh, in more cities and then over a longer period of time. So what is Bolt's approach to kind of competition when you're going into a new city and say you do have like an established uh, player there already providing a similar service, kind of what's your approach to that? So as a lawyer, I have to say I'm fine with all of the regulations when we come out to, to, to or I'm fine with all of the competition when we go to new city, when the regulations apply to all of us. Mm. So if everyone's compliant. Mm -hmm. So again, we're telling, you know, we have three scooter operations at this point, three and a half. Um, one of them, one of them came out quite late. We've all been at the same table when we discuss with the city, so we all have the same regulations that are applicable to us. And then, for instance, in the ride-hailing service, um, in some countries in Europe, we have a competitor uh, that's known for being non-compliant uh, with the local regulations. Okay. And actually, this is not favorable to us because it leads to a price war. Um, you know, they can be more cheaper because they don't abide by the regulations. They're not compliant. Um, it means they can uh, be cheaper in turn. And this is not fair competition. So mm -hmm. we're happy when the competition is fair. Yeah. Okay. And um, Sandra, I, I see you've added an extra service, which is Bolt Walk. So you, <laughs> you're encouraging people just not to use your product now. Yeah, it was, it was actually on the zero emissions day. 
So it was a one-day deal, uh, but basically we wanted to uh, raise awareness that, you know, when you think of urban mobility and how you move around, how do you go from point A to point B, please don't forget walking. Yeah. Because many people tend to forget that. I mean, these days, when a ride is so cheap um, or an e-scooter is so close to you, you, you tend to forget that actually a health, healthier and the cheapest option is walking. Mm. And um, yeah, it would have been interesting to see inside your boardroom meeting when that one was <laughs> proposed. Um, and I guess like inside Bolt, um, so you know, I I used to work for a big company and I used to sit next to our corporate social responsibility manager. And I do remember the challenges she had of um, of getting change internally. Like how challenging can it be kind of for someone in your position um, kind of trying to, yeah, uh, kind of make a startup kind of more um, more socially responsible, more environmental. How can how can you take on those challenges? Um, well, I think I mean Bolt is mainly young, enthusiastic people who care about the environment, so it has been quite easy. Uh, but still, um, let's say if I go to the product owner of a specific service and I say we need to look at how you can offer your service more uh, sustainability uh, in a more sustainable uh, way, um, you know, then those product owners, those business-minded people, think about uh, ROI, uh, return on investment. So if I have to spend more money on on offering more green solutions or offering more green alternatives. Alternatives, what's the return on investment? And you don't see an immediate ROI uh, because the consumers, you know, it will take time for them to get used to it and realize that this is a more environmentally friendly option and to switch to that. So immediately they only see um, a cost or they only see spendings uh, at first and they don't see the immediate outcome um, as, as to what's the ROI. So it can be kind of difficult to explain this to very business-minded people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, Sandra, like inside your office, like what else do you do that's environmentally friendly? Do you, yeah. Um, well, we have the basic stuff. Uh, you recycle. Uh, we order foods. Like uh, we order muesli to the office that's made in Sarema, and you know, uh, that's not uh, super packaged and stuff like this. We mm-hmm. order fruit uh, from the ro- local uh, retailer um, in the office. We're a paperless office. Uh, we use green electricity where we can. Um, so one of the things actually that's super tricky for us is that as we all operate in 35 countries, you would think that uh, most of those countries offer for your office an alternative, uh, uh, let's say, electricity packages. Uh, well, they don't, uh, mm-hmm. because normally we just rent out uh, some part of the office, uh, especially with scooter warehouses, we rent them out for, for nine months because the season is for, let's say, six, seven months. And then to get the landlord to change their electricity package for us, it's, it's quite uh, tricky to convince them to do so. So we do use green electricity in offices where we can, uh, but where we can't, we're looking now for alternatives with the natural capital partners, um, our partner in offsetting. So what what could we do in this case? Okay. And um, Sandra, we talked about greenwashing, but then I guess like on the opposite end of the scale, you could have a startup that invests like really well, like yourself in environmental initiatives, and then the customers just don't know about them. And then customers can't make good environmental choices if you don't market it well. So yeah. on the other side of the greenwashing, like you do also have responsibility to really educate customers about what you're doing. Um, we had a chat about kind of when you're entering a market, some ride-sharing companies, yeah, they really do kind of flood with their products in order to get that kind of market dominance. How does Bolt advertise? 
Uh, well, you just mentioned our, our walking category. This was a marketing campaign, mm -hmm. right? Because we didn't charge people anything uh, for them going uh, for a walk. <laughs> but uh, really, so so my boss says it has to be 70% of, of actual, you know, focus on the project. And then you have to be able to do 30% marketing as well. Okay. So, so people would gain consciousness in this regard. And now as, as Martin and I are drafting our long-term sustainability strategy, um, so we focus on the UN SDGs, so the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. And one of them is education. And it's not only what we do to outside to support educational projects, it's also how you educate actually your users and your consumers to make more environmentally uh, friendly choices. Um, such as, you know, you have to go from point A to point B, uh, you should take the first step with a public transport and then maybe you can end up the trip with a school which is what I do, which is how I go to work. But as long as people, you know, don't have this awareness of, of what's the what's their own CO2 footprint, um, as long as they don't have this, um, then they're not making those choices, unfortunately. Mm. And you do think it's a younger uh, demographic that is most receptive to these kind of messages? For now, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for one thing, it, the younger generation that doesn't necessarily get their driver's license even anymore. Um, or mm. if they do get their driver's license, they don't get a car. Yeah. Because this is consciously done so. Uh, in some cities, in some cities, it's done so because they don't have parking spaces. <laughs> yeah. But then, I mean, for them to understand what are their alternatives to personal cars, they do do some research. And then they figure out what's the most environmentally friendly way that they can move around in a city. Mm. It took me 15 years to get my driving license after <laughs> I first started. And I, I gave up for a long time. But then uh, we had a baby and my partner said, oh, we need a car for yeah, the baby. That, that, that's normally how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So Bolt is now a manufacturing company, kind of you manufacture your own scooters. Like, well, what else are you doing to reduce the environmental impact of scooters? So yes, we, we do manufacture our own scooters, but still, I mean, you need to think about uh, what kind of electricity, for instance, do you use to charge them? Mm. Also, what kind of cars do you use uh, to get the scooters out on the streets and to the deployment spots where you pick them up in the morning to, uh, to go and enjoy our rides, right? Um, so again, we're working with our partners, the NCP, um, to figure out how we can offset our scooters and actually even go beyond offsetting because the scooter CO2 emissions is not that big in itself. So how could we go climate positive with the e-scooters, meaning that we actually reduce more CO2 emissions from the environment uh, than we admit um, so Microsoft is doing that. They're, they're promising to go uh, carbon uh, carbon negative or climate positive uh, with their entire operations by 2030. Um, and some other big tech companies have announced that. Uh, but no other scooter companies is, is doing that by the end of the year as we are promising. So essentially it means that we offset to zero. So we go carbon uh, neutral. And then we find so-called catalyst projects, uh, which would add additionality. So actually we then start reducing CO2 from the environment beyond just uh, emitting CO2. So one of the easiest projects that known out there for that is uh, protecting trees. Mm. Um, so whether, you know, you, you protect the forest from being taken down uh, or, you know, you, you purchase a piece of land, you, you uh, plant your own trees and make sure that they're not taken down after 20, 30, 50 years, that they, st uh, that they stand there for 80 to 100 years. And, and so because uh, trees are one of the most easily comprehensible uh, ways of actually reducing CO2 from the environment mm. because they create more oxygen. I guess this is where concerns of greenwashing coming in, that you can invest in a project and, um, you know, maybe the startup might not, if they don't do their research properly, they might not know kind of what happens to that project afterwards. Absolutely. And yeah, because many concerns come out with exactly this tree planting. You know, you go, you buy a tree um, and you, you pay this amount, whether it's 250, whether it's five euros or 10 euros. Mm. But 
then you never know what's going to happen to this tree. Will they actually take this down after 10 years or will, we, will it be kept for, for 100 years? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's just a funny story uh, from this weekend. <laughs> um, Bolt did an Instagram campaign uh, in the spring where he asked people to share um, a specific story to raise environmental awareness. And then we got uh, uh, 1,600 uh, reshares of this post and meant that we purchased uh, 1,600 trees. And over just this weekend, we uh, we physically went over and planted those trees uh, together great. with the Gos Lodus, which is an Estonian uh, company by Estonian startup owners. Um, and so basically they had purchased the land. We went over there. Um, and man, I tell you, it was not as easy as I pictured. I mm. mean, I thought I would go over there, plant 10 trees, take a nice picture, yeah. you know. Get on Instagram. Yeah, but uh, but I actually planted 100 or so trees um, and, um, and the, the land was full of uh, nettles. So they were burning your feet. Um, and then you had to, you know, have to find your way through the ground with the shovels, through mm. the roots of other plants. And then you had to make way for the tree. And uh, I burn more calories than in a gym. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was worth it. Yeah. And it's good that you do know kind of like you do know the project yourself. And like, so the other thing I heard is about like sometimes if you if you use um, these kind of schemes that you don't know much about, sometimes they can sell the same scheme to different people. So yeah. different companies think they've invested in the same trees. Yeah. Um, so. So, so if you are a, a startup looking to do something like this, um, I guess the first thing to start is you need to audit your kind of environmental footprint and kind of get a full overview of the numbers and not just the most obvious ones, but really follow things back to see how things are being made, where's electricity coming from yeah. and things like that. Maybe audit is a bad for word because okay. it would uh, you know scare off some people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you need to understand, you know, you don't even need to go full company-wide auditing or, or mm-hmm. calculations. You might start with one vertical. You know, what's your principal thing that your business does? For us, it's right hailing, right? Mm. So, so when we started off with offsetting, we started off with uh, offsetting our European rights. You, you calculated, you know, what are the CO2 emissions of a specific car? How many rights do we do? And, and, and by this, you get your CO2 emissions. Mm. So that's quite an uh, easy start uh, in, in this regard. Um, but then, I mean, if you want to go more, more comprehensive, you, you calculate the footprint of your office, uh, what your people do, mm. how, how much do they travel. Uh, but luckily, these days, there are many alternative options. Like you can already buy SAS tickets if you want to buy them with uh, carbon offsets already, mm-hmm. or do you just want to buy a regular ticket that's a bit cheaper? I mean, even, you know, in my apartment building, I could choose between an electricity package that was a regular or green electricity, which would only cost one euro more. Mm-hmm. So there are some very small steps you can do, um, you know, recycle at the office. And then there are some bigger things you can do. How you, how do you make your business inherently, you know, more environmentally friendly? And it's interesting that you got an independent um, organization in to assess that. But maybe for some companies listening, they can do it themselves? Or? Absolutely. You, you can do it yourself. Uh, you can do it the, this yourself. Um, you don't get a certificate on top of that. Uh, but, I mean, do you actually need that? Um, in a way, if you're a big company and you don't want to be, uh, you know, called out for uh, greenwashing, mm-hmm. then it's, uh, it's going to become necessary. But if you're a small company mm-hmm. and you just try to figure out how to go more green, you can for sure mm-hmm. absolutely do this in-house. So you got to at least make sure it's credible. Can yeah. you credibly do it yeah. yourself or do you need some help? Absolutely. Uh, mm. You can credibly do it yourself. If you want, there are always, you know, freelancers, uh, consultation mm. companies out there. And many startups are actually coming out with their new solutions. Oh. Um, 
there's a company called Earth Not Mars that's just coming out now. Um, they're still building their startup, which is basically they have a calculator on their platform, on their website. You go there, you insert the things that you do. Uh, they calculate the CO2 emissions for you and they say, okay, for this you need to plant 1,200 trees to offset your emissions. So I think in the future, it's going to be made more and more easier uh, for the companies out there to, to go greener if they, if they generally want to do so. Okay. Earth not Mars. Yeah. It sounds like they were a bit fed up with Elon Musk's <laughs> tweets, but okay. Um, and then I guess, yeah, the next stage, once you've got that kind of calculation, you should be thinking more about um, how can you reduce and how can you offset? Um, and I guess reducing is kind of fairly simple, kind of relatively kind of looking at your operations and where you can make changes. Offsetting is obviously where, as we discussed, it gets more complicated. Um, but you think it is possible for even for very small startups to look at schemes they can contribute to if they do their research rights. Absolutely. Um, you can even directly find uh, find and fund your own projects. Uh, so we use a specific company and we do the offsetting via those. But you can just go online and look for how, how you can fund uh, projects in the amount that you have emitted CO2. You just need to make sure that you find credible websites right so you mm -hmm. need to do still some extra research on top yeah. of that but actually it's quite easy or you know companies are popping out in Estonia um, a company called Single Earth uh, they're offering uh, to do local offsets with you mm. um, they can help you with calculations um, they have uh, bought some wetland in Estonia and some forests so even if you're not sure if you want to do this long term um, offsetting I mean uh, you can uh, rent a forest with them for one year and see how it works for your company interesting how important is it to do it like locally, like to where your customers are and make it relevant to your customers? Um, well, it's quite difficult at this point um, uh, for us because when we think about uh, doing offsetting now for our European rights, uh, there are actually not too many credited projects available in Europe because it's quite expensive to start with. Uh, so what we do is now our offsetting uh, projects are mainly in Africa. But it's, it's nice for us because our second half of the business is in Africa. So we oh. currently offset the rights in Europe and, and we actually fund uh, the projects in Africa. But uh, there are, you know, save uh, Amazon uh, rainforests, etc. So, so um, I think the biggest impact actually comes through those large-scale projects. You can do some local offsetting as well um, because it shows your customers that you care for the local environment as well. But to make a bigger impact, I think we need to go beyond uh, and outside of Europe. Okay. This is very selfish, but very happy if anyone wants to invest in projects here in Estonia, yeah. like more wilderness, the better. Um, and then finally, you need to tell people about it. So you mentioned the 70, 30%. You think 70% of corporate social responsibility or sustainability is about doing it and 30% is making sure people know about it. And, you know, I we talk about greenwashing quite cynically, but actually like customers do need to make good environmental decisions like if they can't do that then you know you can't it's not going to support the environmental work in the first place so you think about 30 percent should be dedicated to telling people about it yeah it's it's not even 70 percent i mean 30 percent marketing it's rather 30 percent educating the people okay because you know we as a company with bolt can make a difference we can introduce as many electric vehicles in our platform we can go with as many hybrid cars as possible but actually people still see that okay but this uh, regular internal combustion engine car is cheaper i'm gonna go for that then i mean it, we don't actually make the difference as a whole right mm. so so you have to go into the projects change yourself inherently but also you need to focus on educating your client okay 
And on the subject of advertising, I want to ask about your latest advertising campaign, um, which is in Estonian. And ha- having an advertising campaign in Estonian isn't unusual here in Estonia. <laughs> However, in London, it is. So in London, you were using Estonian uh, language in your advertising. What's all that about? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we did a campaign in the London Tube uh, where we had words such as sastlik, which are probably quite difficult for you. I, I'm to... developing, I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, which are quite difficult to pronounce uh, for locals, right? Um, so the idea is to first bring attention to the fact that we're Estonian. So we're a European company. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, from somewhere far away lands where you don't know, you know, h- how we function as a company, where, mm. HQ, uh, where HQ is, where revenues are from. Uh, but also just, you know, try and be nice and, and uh, uh, geeky and, and dorky in our advertising campaigns. Oh, I think we got a lot of attention from Estonia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did get a lot of attention in the UK as well, but maybe uh, not as much. Mm. Well, at least people were here happy that, you know, we're such a, we come from such a small uh, country. Uh, our language is uh, spoken by a million people uh, globally, right? So, mm-hmm. so we extend this. Um, and actually, I don't know if you know, but even our app can be used in Estonian um, throughout the world. Oh, really? So if ah. we're in 35 countries, uh, you have your app uh, in Estonian language. You can go to, I ah. don't know, Lagos, or you can go to Riga or Bucharest, and you can use the app in Estonian. That's cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, it's it's interesting because there was a time not so long ago when even companies like in Estonia would try to uh, minimize their Estonian presence a bit because there were certain um, perceptions, stereotypes of Estonia as a, a Eastern European, I'm using quotation marks, kind of a former Soviet country. I'm using quotation marks again for people uh, who can't see me. Um and I guess that's really changed kind of recently. Estonia's reputation has changed a lot. Um, yeah, I remember seeing products made in Estonia and they would say made in Europe on them in, in fairly big letters. But the, this, is, uh, this is a requirement from the EU level. So you shouldn't be advertising products coming from a specific country anymore. Mm. But no. <laughs> even within like um, marketing and branding, like yeah. people, are, companies are a lot more proud to come from Estonia. Is that something you've seen about changing perceptions of having an Estonian company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to work for the Estonian government, right, mm. in, in the CI office, and I think what we have done in terms of we have to say it's still a marketing of e-Estonia uh, globally. I think this has helped our companies immensely. So as you mentioned, you know, I mean, I still read articles from the New York Times or Forbes or, or wherever, mm. and they start um, uh, the sentence or the paragraph where they lead to explaining what e-Estonia is and saying, oh, this ex-Soviet Union country, mm-hmm. right? So it has a past had taste in your mouth mm-hmm. but i think estonia e estonia has evolved and gained a reputation globally that we can be proud of our company i think slowly this you know ex-soviet reputation is, is falling off not only for us in estonia but also in latvia i mean elsewhere in the baltics yeah i mean take belarus for now what's yeah. happening in this country is just awful but i mean still out of this picture uh, when they talk about the riots and what's going on they still talk about the the amazing IT atmosphere of Belarus right mm-hmm. so i think these days it's it doesn't anymore matter where you come from when you're actually doing genuinely effective things mm-hmm. and we have amazing technology here in Estonia. Uh, for me, one of the best things, though, is the environment. So, uh, so actually, when we were setting up this interview, I was um, I was bear spotting, and I said I have to be quiet because I'm I'm kind of trying to spot some bears. Um, we do have like uh, amazing wilderness here, and that was only like an hour from Tallinn. Um, so, I'm really grateful for the work you're doing uh, to help. Uh, protect our environment even though your company is growing so phenomenally um what about you kind of in estonia you live and work in estonia how do you like to relax at kind of weekends and um yeah how do you do you enjoy nature here as well 
Well, I told you this uh, week I literally went out and, and planted some trees, right? Mm-hmm. Some hundred trees. Uh, but normally um, I live by the beach. So, ah. I mean, I go biking, uh, I go roller skating, I go jogging. Uh, my grandparents live just uh, 200 kilometers from Tallinn. But uh, this is where I grew up. You know, there's a forest. I just go there, walk their dog. Um, uh, I try to read books outside as much as possible. So mm. if you go outside to a cafe, then I'm this weird person who's reading a book, book and not scrolling their phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I mean... I think I, I try to be more environmentally conscious in all of the choices I make, not only mm-hmm. h- how I travel, but also what I eat. Uh, I am not a vegetarian or vegan so far yet, um, but I still you know, like to know where my meats come from and, and, and where my fruit and vegetables come from, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Good. And yeah, we do have a, a great life here living and working in Estonia. And um, if you haven't noticed, that's a very subtle advert for the fact that uh, if you are thinking of starting your company, do consider starting it in Estonia and come join us. You'll be very welcome here. Um, Sandra, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today, giving us um, really useful insight into Bolt and really useful advice for, for other startups. And hopefully many more startups will be going green. Thank you. Later. Later. <laughs>